Hello, everyone, and either welcome or welcome back to the Gender Libertarian Podcast. If you do like this, please rate, comment, and subscribe. You can find me on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Spotify, YouTube, and on my Patreon page where you do get early access to episodes and exclusive content. I will put the link down in the show notes. Well, um, Happy New Year? <laughs> we are five days into 2020, and it's not going so good so far. This is one, this past week feels like it's been a month long. And technically, this was a short week. Like, New Year's Day happened this week, although that feels like it was eons ago. Because just so much has happened this week, and especially recent events that on this one, this is just one of those episodes where you just kind of have to pick a point to mash the record button, knowing that there's probably still stuff happening right now. That is very relevant to everything, but you just got to pick a spot to say, okay, we're recording right here, and this may be completely out of date by the time you listen to it. So anyway, yes, um, Happy New Year. First episode of the new year and the new decade. And like I said, it's it's not going so good so far. And I want to, as I normally do with these, I want to try to handle everything in kind of like a chronological order and not get too jumbled up here. So what I want to start with is back on the 28th, which was the seventh day of Hanukkah, there was an attack in a shul in Muncie, New York. Now, Muncie is a little hamlet that is predominantly Orthodox Jew. And so obviously, they were in the shul. It's at night. They're celebrating Hanukkah. And a man went in with a machete And he ended up stabbing five people. Fortunately, nobody died. But it was the latest in a string of attacks that have been happening in New York City, in the New York City area, that this is a situation that's been going on for, at this point, probably a little over a year, where you've been seeing a lot of anti-Semitic attacks happening in and around New York City. And obviously, not all of them are to this extent. Obviously, this was a big deal. Because it was, obviously, it's Hanukkah, they're in a shul, this guy came in, he started stabbing people, they had to fight him off with a freaking end table, for Christ's sake. But they got him out of there, Um, cops ended up catching him, he is in custody. And, yeah, it was just, it's a very disconcerting thing, especially, like I said, this is something that has been kind of a thing that has been going on, and nobody really talks about it, especially... Not really publicly, because it's not a super easy topic to talk about, especially for the left, because the problem that is occurring here with these anti-Semitic attacks is it's not like white supremacist or alt-right or anybody attacking Jews. It's predominantly black people attacking Jews. And, And when I say attacking, I mean like literally attacking them on the street, like punching them, kicking them, pushing them over, screaming anti-Semitic slurs at them. And yeah, so it's it's a situation that certain people have wanted to avoid talking about because now you have to have some very uncomfortable conversations. And what kind of happened in the lead up to the Muncie attack is a couple of days before that, Bill de Blasio had said in relationship to other anti-Semitic attacks. And prior to the Muncie attack, there was a full week 
prior to that where there wasn't a single day that went by where there wasn't an attack on a Hasidic Jewish person. And I, and I point out Hasidic Jewish because if you don't know anything about Hasidic Jews, Orthodox Jews, those are like your visible Jews, like the people that, you know, they wear the hats, they have the hair, they have the coats, people who are obviously Jewish, not just people who are Jewish, but you wouldn't really know what to look at them. So in response to that, finally, finally in response to this, like I said, year plus long problem that's been festering in New York City, de Blasio says that he is going to send out enhanced police presence to certain neighborhoods that are predominantly Jewish for the sake of trying to protect these people. The A lot of people on the left had a really interesting response to that. Um, and when I say interesting, I mean, um, yeah, you guys walked right up to a line here. Um, a lot of people went on Twitter and pointed out that sending more police into these neighborhoods where it is kind of a mix of black and Jewish people would disproportionately affect the black people in the community and that it was not great optics for it to be looking like de Blasio was sending in police to protect Jewish people where he supposedly, theoretically, would not have done the same for anybody else. And that by having this increased police presence there, it's theoretically doing harm to the people of color in those communities. Let me back up and reiterate this one more time. For the past year, there has been a problem with people attacking Jewish people on the street, in public, in broad daylight. If this were, say, a problem where, let's, let's just say it was white people openly attacking black people on the street in broad daylight. I don't think anybody would have a problem with de Blasio sending in police into those neighborhoods to protect the black people. So, yeah, is is your problem really with the police presence or is it with who they're there to protect? And this kind of brings up a topic that, and this is another reason why it's really hard for people on the left to discuss this, is this idea that Jews are a protected class in this country and that the thought is kind of, it almost seems like, especially on the progressive left, people seem to think that we already do enough for Jews, like we already bend over backwards for Jews, and that we shouldn't be doing anything extra special for Jews. And to me, this isn't doing anything extra special. It's if you have a group of people who are being targeted, then it is kind of your job as the mayor to make sure that there is a enhanced police presence in that area. Feel however you want to feel about an enhanced police presence. I'm not a fan of it either. But if it's a situation where people are getting attacked on the street because of their their looks, basically, because, I mean, obviously you're attacking people who are obviously Jewish, to not say anything was really becoming a very big deal even before the Monsi attack. So... This happens, and then, like, 24 hours later, the Monsi attack happens. And so, all of a sudden, there has to be this this weird 
reconciliation with the fact that this is actually a problem. Like this is an actual legit problem. And and now you have to walk back everything that you just said 24 hours earlier about how it's bad optics for de Blasio to be sending in extra police into neighborhoods that are predominantly Jewish. So that happened. That was that was weird. That was a very weird moment and just really kind of gross and icky. And for what it's worth today, um, in New York City, in Brooklyn, they did have a solidarity march for the Jewish people. And it looks like it was pretty heavily attended. Looked like everybody made it out okay. Like there wasn't any attacks on the parade itself. So hooray for that. I don't know how much police presence was there, but at least nothing bad happened there. So whether this is going to be an ongoing problem or not, I'm, I mean, I don't think that it's going away anytime soon. And especially because one of the other reactions that came out of this, and not just from like weird lefty progressive blue checkmark Twitter, but I saw multiple pieces run in major publications making the argument that this situation is quote unquote complicated. And I'm just like, I'm sorry, what? What the fuck is complicated about calling people who attack Jewish people anti-Semites? What the fuck is complicated about that? But obviously, if you're part of the progressive left and you believe in intersectionality, then yeah, I guess this is kind of complicated for you because if Jews are the top of the totem pole, then you kind of have to reconcile the fact that your privilege as it were, does not equal protection. And in fact, for a lot of people, that privilege means that those people now have a target on their back and that whatever you do to Jews is punching up, even if it's literally punching them. So it just the, the amount of people that tried to explain this away and walked real close, like real, real close to blaming Jewish people for anti-Semitism was a bit gross to watch. And I'm just looking at this like, you guys realize that blaming Jews for anti-Semitism is one of the most anti-Semitic tropes out there. Like, this is the this is the thing that has been used against Jews for centuries. That basically anything that happens to you is your fault because you did something by being Jewish. And I'm just like, did these mofos just completely embrace anti-Semitism because it's black people attacking Jews? <laughs> I was just like, I cannot believe this. I'm I'm like, wow. And then there were people who made the argument that if a black person is anti-Semitic, it's not because of that person. It's because of white supremacy or somehow white people have brainwashed them into being anti-Semitic. I'm just like, you guys are stripping black people of their agency by saying that basically they're controlled by white people, which is a racist trope. I was just like, what the fuck is wrong with you people? What do, do you do you hear the words coming out of your mouths right now? But it was just it was nuts. And of course, this this news cycle would have probably gone on for a little longer had other things not happened this week. But. I, I wanted to touch on that because it just, the reaction to it was just so, 
it, it, it took me aback. I was just like, I, I cannot believe that the left is embracing these sorts of anti-Semitic talking points, really, to try to excuse away the fact that black people are attacking Jewish people in New York City. It's <laughs> like, wow. And then the, the Sunday we had in White Settlement, Texas. Don't don't ask me, guys. I didn't name the town. <laughs> but in White Settlement, Texas, at the West Freeway Church of Christ, there was a church shooting. Um, two people did end up dead here, one of them being the shooter and the other person being the first person to draw down on this guy, which there ended up being a sum total of seven people who drew down on this shooter. And he was killed within six seconds. So this was very, very quick. Like that that first shot is probably the only shot he got off before one of the parishioners, from what I understand, shot him in the fucking face and killed him. But this obviously ignited a whole conversation about guns and guns being in churches and gun rights and who carries and who doesn't carry. (sighs) I hate this conversation. It's so stupid. Like, this is the ideal, well, not ideal, but you know what I mean, the ideal situation of how this is supposed to happen in a society where people do either conceal or open carry. If somebody pops off, other people neutralize them. It's the good guy with the gun argument. And in this situation, that's exactly what happened. So, I mean, waiting for the cops, God only knows how many people would have ended up dead. Like, there were people there on the scene who were ready, willing, and able to take care of the situation. One of them even being, like, this little grandma. Like, it was so hilarious. Like, grandma's just like, well, I guess it's go time. She stands up and pulls out her gun. I'm just like, wow. But that's that's Texas. Like, I don't even know what would possess somebody to even try this in Texas, of all places. But there was this concerted effort in the press to try to somehow reinterpret this particular incident as why we need gun control laws and why churches shouldn't allow guns in their buildings, which as far as I'm concerned, any place of worship, that's your business. Like private property, you can allow or not allow guns on there as you wish. It's your property. It just, it struck me, especially in relationship to the Muncie attack that happened the day before, the day before somebody else walked into a place of worship and started attacking worshipers. I'm pretty sure the people in Muncie would have liked to have had a gun so that they wouldn't have to fight off a dude with a machete with a fucking end table. Like, I'm I'm sure they would have been more than happy to be able to have the right to carry guns into their shul. But, of course, it's New York. So, gun ownership is incredibly, incredibly, incredibly difficult in New York. It's not impossible. You can get a concealed carry permit. You basically have to know somebody, though. And you really have to know somebody in order to get that. And also to be able to purchase guns, like purchasing handguns, like you don't do that. Like, maybe hunting rifles, but... It just it struck me that the press went out of their way to try to make an argument 
that people shouldn't be able to carry guns at all or to carry guns into places of worship the day after Muncie. And in relationship to a story where those who were carrying in their place of worship were able to neutralize a threat within six seconds. How the fuck do you argue against that? Like, that's that's the argument for being able to carry weapons into your place of worship or wherever that you are allowed to carry weapons into. It was just like... Man, it just... I, the, the anti-gun thing... I mean, it's an agenda. We all know it's an agenda. But it's clearly, especially after that story, it's an agenda where it's not based around safety. It's based around taking people's guns away, which, yes, we all know that. But it's always instructive to every now and again see one of these stories where everything went the way it's supposed to go and still see the anti-gun people bitch about it. Like, no, no, mm -mm. so that was those two stories. And then, then, and then, let me try to back this up and do this chronologically so that we can kind of understand how the hell we've gotten where we've gotten here with Iran. So a little bit of backstory. Um, Trump has been for the past probably maybe not totally a year, but it's been a fair amount of time, has been engaging in this campaign of maximum pressure against Iran. And what that's looked like is basically we've had these sorts of skirmishes. They shot down a drone. They, they captured a tanker. We attacked them back. Yada, yada, yada. That's been going on for some time. Now, what precipitated this current series of events is that on December 29th, um, Hezbollah-backed militants attacked and killed a American contractor. I mean, they didn't specifically attack the American contractor, but they they bombed an encampment and it ended up killing a contractor. Um, I think it injured a couple of service members, um, injured a couple of natives. Anyway, so... In retaliation for that December 29th incident, Trump authorized the bombing of the militants who did the attack. So, bombed them. Um, it was double digits that were killed. I want it was I forget the exact number. I want to say it was in the 20s. So, that happened. And then New Year's Eve going into New Year's Day is when the US embassy in Baghdad was attacked by these Iranian-backed militants. So they get to the embassy, and to to kind of explain the embassy in Baghdad, for those of you who don't know, it is massive. It is one of the most secure on the planet, obviously, because of where it's at. It's in Iraq, obviously. It's in Baghdad. So obviously kind of a big horking target. And so they storm the embassy, Um Nobody was killed in this. No, Nobody in the embassy was, was injured or anything. It looks like they didn't really get into the embassy proper. They got into, like, it's described as like a reception area. And I will admit, they burned the shit out of it. Like, they, they did damage. Like, they didn't get into their, like, into where, like, diplomats and stuff are. Obviously, they were on lockdown, but everybody's okay. So this ended up, like I said, started on New Year's Eve, went into New Year's Day. 
Um, we deployed more troops, and eventually the militants left. So it was not great, don't get me wrong, but at no point did this look like it was going to devolve into another Benghazi. I mean, we sent more troops almost immediately. Um, I think the militants pretty much dispersed before the new troops even really got there. So, yeah, we've got some 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 damage. I mean, they did some damage. I'm not going to lie. But it wasn't a full-scale, like, massive, all-hands-on-deck panic sort of situation like Benghazi. So, that happens. Then, on Thursday, so that was Tuesday and Wednesday, on Thursday, the U.S., well, I, I say the U.S., Trump ordered a drone strike that ended up killing Kasim Soleimani. Now, Soleimani was the leader, he was a major general and leader of the Quids Force. And that Quids, not to be confused with the Kurds, the Quids, which is a, a portion of the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps. And what Quids Force did was basically their job was to actually go into other countries and train insurgents. To basically, it's it's part of Iran's campaign to back insurgents, basically. So this was a bad dude. And I don't mean like corn pop bad. I mean, this dude had a lot of blood on his hands. He's got U.S. blood on his hands. He's got Iranian blood on his hands, Iraqi blood. He also was a big backer of Assad over in Syria. So, yeah, not a great dude. Not really a dude that humanity is going to miss. That being said, he was also a dude who is an official member of the Iranian government. And to kind of give an idea of how important this guy is, I'm going to steal what Scott Horton said, which is that this would be analogous to somebody drone striking and killing Mike Pence. Like Soleimani reported to and took orders from the Ayatollah directly. Like there was nobody else between him and the Ayatollah, which the Ayatollah is the supreme leader of Iran. So big deal, super huge deal. And so that happened. And the reactions have been wild. Here's the thing about the Middle East in general. You can't just do a thing in the Middle East and expect it to just be a thing and that's it. There's been a lot of blowback. I think there will be more blowback. We'll discuss that in a second. But People have been offering up different sorts of reactions to this. The simplistic reaction is, well, this guy was bad and he deserved to die, so that's that. Other reactions have been a little more nuanced, mainly in regards to the fact that this wasn't just some guy. Like, we're not even talking like... I mean, he's not just some random schmo. I mean, he's we're not even talking like Osama bin Laden or al-Baghdadi. We're talking somebody who is an official member of the Iranian government that the U.S. just killed. There are questions as to the legality of whether or not we can do that. There are laws on the books that say that the U.S. 
will not directly target the member of any other country's government. Which this is that whether whatever you may happen to think about Soleimani, he's a, he was a member of the Iranian government. So there's that. There's what kind of has to be grappled with is is this a declaration of war? I mean, it's most definitely an act of war. Like you can't interpret this as anything other than an act of war. You killed a very high-ranking member of the Iranian government. Like. If the shoe was on the other foot, we would most certainly view that as an act of war. So, doing that without approval from Congress is a bit dicey. Then there's also the question of because this did happen in Iraq, whether the 2001 AUMF, AUMF covers us being able to do this in Iraq because it seems like. Nobody really asked the Iraqi government whether they would be super cool with us doing this. So there's that argument.、Um, I mean, it's just there's there's a whole mess of questions surrounding the executive use of the military in this fashion, especially against somebody who, like I said, I mean, this isn't this isn't ordering the death of bin Laden or al Baghdadi like those. Like Al Qaeda, ISIS—they're not official governments. They weren't representatives of a country. You had caliphates. Like there was, and there's a question about how you declare war against those people. Anyway, this was not that. This is a series of magnitude more destabilizing, for lack of a better word.、Um, Just definitely brings up a lot more legal issues than those two killings did. Yeah, I'm. I I I I I. I. To me, this is an abuse of power. I mean, you can make the argument that this dude deserved to be dead, and he does. But there is still a constitutional way. And there are still laws surrounding how you do things, and just because somebody is a bad guy, doesn't mean you get to ignore all that. Like we have a methodology in place for a reason. And to me, here's my thing: if you say that this is okay, that it's okay for the president of the United States to order the death of a high-ranking official. In another government, do you really want to make that argument? Do you really want to say that's okay? I I don't I don't think that's okay. I I I think that's a huge problem, to be honest. But yeah, I don't I don't know. I I'm I'm real curious to see what, if anything, Congress is going to do about this. I I don't I don't know. But here's what has happened since then. Um, there's been two narratives put forth, and the first one that kind of sprung up was that the killing of Soleimani was in direct response to the U.S. embassy attack, which is understandable because in the wake of the embassy attack, Trump had tweeted out that there would be some kind of of big Repercussion, like something big will happen in response to this. So everybody just kind of assumed two plus two, and I mean that's a reasonable inference to make. But 
Right after the attack, the White House put out this narrative that he was killed because of an imminent attack threat, that he had to be killed right now because they had some sort of intel that very, very soon, imminent, obviously, that Soleimani was planning on carrying out an attack or a series of attacks that would kill the the number was originally hundreds to thousands of Americans. There's not been any kind of fleshing out of that, of what exactly that means. <laughs> it was just kind of put out there and everyone's just like, okay, well, what, what does that, what, what, what eminent attack? Like, what do you mean? And for what it's worth, Soleimani has been operating for, gosh, roughly 30 years. Like, he's not some new guy on the scene, so... There was a lot of questions about, okay, well, what what specifically do you have that he was going to do something now? Like, what, 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 what's going on here? So, you, you have these, these two narratives, and it seems like we've almost bounced back. The official narrative is now that it was in relationship to the embassy attack. So, I'm not saying that the two facts can't both exist in the same plane of existence. But to me, it's either like, okay, did you do this because you had intel or did you do this as a response to the embassy attack? Because those are two very different issues. And if this was something where you had planned this, and for what it's worth, I've seen rumors that prior to New Year's Eve, prior to the embassy attack, that Trump was going around Mar-a-Lago kind of dropping to people that were about to do something big with Iran. So I, what he was talking about, I don't know. In the wake of this, it seems like the the story that is coming out is that after the December 29th attack, the Pentagon made a list of possible responses that Trump could pick from to respond to that attack. And on the list was killing Soleimani. But that was supposed to be presented as kind of like the very, very extreme, far out, just balls out option. And the other options were various sorts of bombings, which Trump did actually end up picking one of those options. But this option of killing Soleimani was put in front of him then. And he rejected it at that time. And then apparently after the embassy attack, he then authorized the killing of Soleimani? I don't know. There's there's a lot of holes here. There's a lot of problems with this narrative. And to me, the thing that strikes me about even that is that this idea was put in his head at the end of December. Like, the idea of killing Soleimani with, was put in President Trump's cat food head. And so, here's my my kind of theory is that he did originally obviously settle on the on the bombing of the militants who had attacked us and killed the US contractor but i think he kept turning the idea of Soleimani over in his head and i think that might be what he was referring to at Mar-a-Lago again we're probably never going to know the answer to that question we're probably never going to know when he really made that decision so Anyway, yeah, it's, like I said, this is all very, very fluid. 
I mean, this is still unfolding now. And we're just, like I said, this is just, even over the past 48 hours, we're just finally now starting to get something of some sort of timeline as to how exactly all this went down. But another thing that he had said in the direct aftermath of the Soleimani killing is that he had him killed to stop a war. <laughs> Which, what the fuck logic is that? You killed what is considered to be the second ranking person in Iran to prevent a war. That don't make no damn sense. That makes no fucking sense whatsoever. But, like, do you... Do, do, wait, what? And then he promptly proceeded to say, well, we don't want to start a war. We're trying to end a war. That's not how you end a war. That's how you start one, though. That's a real good way to start one. Especially with a regime who hates us. Hates us. And that's a thing that people keep pointing out. It's like, it's hard to tell what the Iranian people feel about this because obviously Iranian media is state-run. Obviously, there's only so many things you can say and do publicly in Iran. So to 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 kind of say anything other than we're sad that Soleimani's dead could get you disappeared. And there have been protesters and there have been people who were trying to do that publicly it didn't end well for them. So what Iranian people feel about this, I'm, I mean, I'm sure they're probably happy he's dead. I mean, like I said, he's got Iranian blood on his hands too. So anyway, today they had the funeral for Soleimani and it was obviously this big to do and everybody came out because you, you do that or, <laughs> or suffer the consequences. Like, it's not really an option. This is a little more compulsory in Iran. Than, like, and, and obviously, the Iranian situation is just horrible for people in Iran, too. So that happened. And the Ayatollah had said that there would not be any kind of retaliation against the United States until after the period of mourning for Soleimani. So as of this recording, no, nothing has happened yet. But nobody has expected anything to happen yet because the Ayatollah was very clear that we're going to do our period of mourning and then we will deal with this. What that's going to look like? I don't know. I don't know. I'm a little scared to find out. I I think it's rather naive for people to think that nothing is going to happen because, I mean, there's... Like I said, if this was us, if the shoe was on the other foot there would most definitely be a response. Like, there's no way that the U.S. would not respond. And so I don't think there's any way that Iran's not going to respond, especially when you have this theocracy that has been screaming death to America since 1979. This ain't going to just fly with no response. There will be a response. What that's going to look like? I don't know. But we have sent more troops to the Middle East. Um, Right now, it was an additional 4,000, and last report I saw, they're kind of like hanging out in Kuwait to see what exactly is going to happen here. So this is kind of a, a wait and see sort of thing as it stands right now, basically just waiting for Iran to decide what they're going to do and then do it, and then I'm sure we'll react, and then they'll react, and then we'll react, and then they'll react, because that's how this is going to work. Oh, this is not good. This is not good. Nope, 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 nope. 
And to make matters worse, Trump has been tweeting. Yeah. Um, here's the thing. <laughs> I shouldn't laugh. This isn't funny. This is not funny at all. This idiot gets on Twitter and, mind you, this is after saying that we don't want a war, we're not trying to start a war. This moron goes on Twitter and tweets out that if Iran does anything, the U.S. already has 52 sites on a list that they will attack, including, specifically in his words, cultural and high-value targets in Iran. Let me try to explain something to you. That's a war crime. Attacking somebody's cultural landmarks is, according to the Geneva Convention, the Hague Convention, and a unanimously agreed on UN resolution, that is a war crime. Don't admit to war crimes on Twitter! Why is this fucking hard? So, so this idiot, he admits to wanting to commit a war crime on Twitter. And then we got this morning where Mike Pompeo ended up going on, I think it was this week, and he was being asked, and basically he confirmed that, yes, the U.S. already has a list of targets in Iran. Like, we're not talking attacking people outside of Iran. We're talking in Iran, starting a hot war. And he kind of refused to answer the question of whether those targeted sites did include cultural sites. And he tried to argue that targeting cultural sites isn't a war crime. I'm like, yeah, pretty clearly is, dude. There's, there's a lot of conventions that are real clear about it. And then, and then, to make matters worse, as if tweeting about wanting to commit a war crime wasn't worse, check out this nugget that he tweeted right before I started recording. These media posts will serve as notification to the United States Congress that should Iran strike any U.S. person or target, the United States will cl quickly and fully strike back, and perhaps in a disproportionate manner. Such legal notice is not required, but is given nevertheless. Did he just admit on Twitter that he plans on violating the separation of powers and basically saying that Congress does not have war powers anymore, that he has war powers? Did this fucker just admit to that on Twitter? <laughs> oh my god, what in the fuck? have we gotten ourselves into? I mean, and like I said, I don't know what Congress's response is going to be, but you better respond something because that's basically the president telling you to go fuck yourself. And I do not ever, ever, ever again want to hear any Republican who complained about how Obama ran military policy for his eight years, but you support this. I don't want to hear from you ever again. I, you sit down, you shut the fuck up, you do not utter another word. This is insane. And I'm really wondering, when exactly is enough going to be enough for these people? When are you going to stop supporting him? I'm, I'm, I'm blown away. I am absolutely blown away. Like, when, like, where's the bottom? Where is the part where Republicans finally are like, nope, no more with this dude? Mm-mm. I don't know if we're going to find it in this coming week, but 
to a point that Trump brought up in that tweet and a conversation that I don't think, well, I mean, this is going to depend on which narrative you believe as to whether or not this was really a symmetric response. If you think that this was in relationship to the embassy incident, is this a symmetric response? I don't think so. If you think this was an imminent threat, maybe, but we have no clue what the threat was. But people are just rolling with this. Like, yeah, we had to kill him. There was an imminent threat. Like, what fucking imminent threat? I'm 38 years old. I remember WMDs. I remember going to Iraq. I remember going to Afghanistan. You ain't going to bullshit me again. No. If you're going to say that there was an imminent threat, you better have some proof. Before you haul us off into another fucking war, you better have some proof. It just, it's like, it's like watching the same thing over and over and over again. It's like, especially on the heels of the Afghanistan papers and seeing how these sorts of things can end or not end, as the case may be. Are, are you really, are you really going to cheerlead this? What the fuck? Yeah, let's let's just let's just open up another front in the Middle East and hope it goes better than Afghanistan. My God, like I just I oof. this is just is not it's not gonna end well, and I'm really not that I haven't already become cynical and jaded about certain people supporting certain things when they didn't support them before when it was somebody else in office. This is going to be one of those ones that's just, it's its going to cost people's lives. And it just, the cynicism is going to really grate at me. It really is. I will go ahead and warn you guys now. Every Republican who supports this shit, fuck off. Just fuck off. My God. Like, I just, I, mm 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 I think I'm going to spend a lot of 2020 angry. <laughs> If if this first five days is any indication, we're going to spend a lot of time angry this year. But before I leave out of this, I want to touch on Iraq's response to the Soleimani killing. Um, Iraq passed a resolution today to phase out foreign military, which means us. Now, this is just a resolution. It doesn't have the bite of a law and... The Iraqi government right now is kind of a hot mess, and there's a lot of Iranian influence in Iraq, which is another reason that this whole thing kind of popped off, but they basically just told us to get the fuck out. So I don't think we're going to get the fuck out, but there is that, you know, they did pass a resolution, and whether or not they'll follow through with anything to actually make that happen, who the hell knows? But the, the Iraqi PM has been kind of mad. Um, he says, and now take this with a grain of salt, because like I said, there is a pretty heavy Iranian influence in Iraq right now because of power vacuums and what happens when we take out certain people who were bad guys. And what happens when you do that doesn't necessarily mean that things are going to get better. That's a whole nother topic, but it, it's kind of a mess. And so... He said that Soleimani was there in Iraq as his guest and that 
he was in the process of basically being a messenger between Saudi Arabia and Iraq and Iran. Whether that's true or not, who knows? We're probably never going to know. But that's the official line coming out of Iraq. Which, okay. Like I said, I don't know how much of that you want to believe. I don't know how much of that is Iranian-influenced. But there's that. <laughs> I, I don't know, guys. I don't know what's going to happen next week. I'm a little frightened. And not to mention that, obviously, Congress will be back in session next week, which means we will be taking up impeachment again, which, given everything that has happened over the past couple of days, I'm very, very curious to see what Nancy Pelosi does with the articles of impeachment. I think there is a good argument for pulling them back and reopening the hearings and perhaps adding an article of impeachment related to the Soleimani killing. I, I think there's a good argument for that. I think that is something that maybe people who didn't support impeachment over the Ukraine situation would support it over this because to me, it's a pretty clear violation of the constitutional separation of powers. But if anything, I would like to see a conversation be forced in Congress about whether that is a problem, whether these AUMFs have created a monster, which, yes, obviously they have. I, I would like to at least see that conversation happen. Whether that's going to happen and in what capacity, I don't know. I mean, I would imagine you have to have it in some capacity because, like I said, this can't go without an answer from Congress. Like at this point, I you just you can't say nothing. You, there has to be some kind of response from Congress. So I, I don't know what that's going to look like. I don't know what's going to happen next week. I'm a little nervous, but at this point, that's pretty much it for this week. So we will all cross our fingers and toes and hope to God nothing too horrible happens. Although I'm I'm not. I'm not feeling super optimistic, I'll be honest. I'm not feeling very optimistic about this, but at this point, I will go ahead and wrap this up. So if you did make it this far, thank you as always. And if you do like this, please rate, comment, and subscribe. You can find me on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Spotify, YouTube, and on my Patreon page. Take care, and until next time.